This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started putting us in your ears, Thanks so much for choosing us. You can send us messages on social at IT Women's Podcast. Or if you like old school messages, you can email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Let us know what you think of this episode or about anything you'd like us to cover in the future. We really love hearing from you. Now this week, and by the way, Happy New Year, I hope it's starting well for you. We're going to bring you a selection of your favourite episodes from 2023. These are the ones that you listened to the most. We're going to bring you some highlights from those favourite episodes. You're going to hear Marion Keyes sharing some learnings on life as she celebrated her 60th birthday. Author and academic Katrina O'Sullivan on how a chance encounter transformed her life. Also, columnist Catelyn Moran on the worrying rise of Andrew Tate and her efforts to help young men and boys navigate the world. There's also a snippet from our interview with Sinead O'Connor recorded during the promotion of her memoir, Rememberings, and a lesson on Botox from journalist and broadcaster Sally Hughes. So let's begin with the late, great Sinead O'Connor, who very sadly died last year. And you'll remember, I'm sure, that uh, we were lucky enough to go out to her house in deepest Wicklow. We spent a lovely couple of hours with her and it really was um, an amazing conversation. We're just going to bring you a few minutes of it here, but you can go back, of course, and listen to the full episode if you want to. In this particular section, we were talking about the Dublin of the 1980s and uh, Sinead's shoplifting career. And she goes on to tell a really funny story about some shoes that she shoplifted, a story that resonated throughout her life. So here she is. The country was broke. That's why everybody was leaving. But the reason that I was the the thief too was uh, myself and my best mate at the time, a girl called Kira O'Flanagan, who then became my personal assistant during the glory years, as I call them. Um, We could run 100 metres in 11.3 seconds. We, my father used to be a sprinter. We were fucking killer sprinters. So, but Kira would have been too nervous to steal. But the kids in the class, the teenagers, get me to steal the clothes to go to gigs because I would just put them on the shop and run, you know, or put the shoes on and run or whatever, you know. So yeah, it, it was partly that. It was like nobody had any money to go to gigs or wear something nice or you know, get get off with the guy, do you know? Yeah, and you were just you were just. Uh 
I suppose it, you ended up in that place in Hyde Park because of all of that, because yeah. you were, your, your father didn't know how to control you and yeah. didn't know what to do with you, essentially. Yeah. Well, it, what I would say is, you know, I, what happened was finally my mate Fiona Smith, she won't mind me naming her because <laughs> she's a brat like me, you know, um, she asked me to steal her a pair of gold shoes because we were all going to the Pretenders. And Chrissy Hind to me, was an amazing figure because up until Chrissy Hind in Ireland, the only role models you had as the type of woman you could be was images of the Virgin Mary, the Immaculate Conception, do you know what I mean? Cindy, the doll, which is the equivalent of Barbie, do you know, Cindy with the different outfits. But there was nothing I could identify with and suddenly fucking Joan Jett and then Chrissy Hind come along in the leather you know, and not, not trying just being a person, do you mm. know what I mean? Just the leather gear and the way she, her old attitude, you know, changed my fucking life, actually. So anyway, Fiona wants the shoes to go to the pretenders, and I'll tell you that this story's going to blow your mind, right, what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> I, brought, I steal the gold shoes out of the British home stores. Do you remember BHS? Yeah. yeah. Was it on O'Connell Street there, was it? It was. Yeah. And then when you turned left down the little road, <laughs> yeah, the there, there was then a little alleyway. Do you remember? Yeah, it the it's still street. there. It's like the alleyway behind GPO, isn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. Well, wherever that is, what happened GPO was, Arcade. this time I didn't run, I got too cocky. So oh. I walked away with the shoes. Yeah. And in the midst of that lane, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Excuse me, miss. You know, that hand on my shoulder was the beginning of my career because it sent me to on Green on, right? And I wait like I said, this is the part that's going to blow your mind. Years later, I think nothing of it, and I've met Chrissy a few times, and that's grand, and what happens is Paul McCartney's wife dies, and Paul puts on a gig at the Royal Albert Hall in honour of Linda. the wife. Yeah. And we're all, like, I've got, you know, we're all real posh dressed up, and I ordered a beautiful dress months before, a red strapless dress. I forgot my shoes. And I never thought about this until about two years later. I used to put shoes on a mantelpiece like works of art. They look beautiful sometimes, you know. Mm. Anyway, I never thought a thing about it. She lent me her shoes for, for the gig, right? Chrissy Hine. Chrissy Hine gives me the shoes. And then at the end of the gig, she says, oh, you can keep them. So I bring them home. I'm in the apartment <laughs> in Bride Street. By the time I noticed this, it was a couple of years after I left London. Um, and I had them in my windowsill just because they're pretty. And then I'm looking at them and going, holy shit. Oh, my God. I got locked up over stealing a pair of gold shoes to go see that fucker. <laughs> and now she's given me the gold. It's like It was like God saying, sorry, and actually, do you know what, Sinead? It, it was all for a good purpose, That's do you know? God. Isn't it mental? And I love that image of that hand on your shoulder starting that was the start everything. Of the career, yeah. Totally. And off you went to High Park. Which... Uh, yeah, not straight away that day. What happened was but they, they, the, the, cops, yeah. the cops got, you know, Tusla involved. And uh, a, a social worker was employed, a horrible woman, fucking hated her. And uh, she recommended to my father and my stepmother that I should go to this place. And my father and my stepmother, who's adorable, trusted these people, mm. you know, with the best of intention. They they believed that it was called a rehabilitation centre for girls with behavioural problems. And as I'm saying in the book, you know, my dad needs a refund. But the, the state paid them for us, and sometimes our parents also did. You know, the state would try to get away with it if they could. So my father, believing that the word rehabilitation sent me there, 
So it wasn't that he was being an asshole. In fact, he was being the opposite, you know. He really wanted me to go on the right path. He was afraid I would choose the path that my mother had set out for me and I would end up in jail, you know. That was the incredible Sinead O'Connor there. And just to remember that that documentary that was made about her, the award-winning documentary, Nothing Compares, is also available to view and stream and I would really highly recommend it. The next clip we have to bring you is from an episode I know you all really enjoyed and it was Marion Keyes who turned 60 last year and came into us with some of her amazing life lessons, including how to apologise, she says, is one of the most important things we can ever learn. And there's a couple of people in my life who could do with a few lessons on that. I think it's sometimes particularly hard for men to do it, actually. But um, yeah, and I found in my life apologising soon and with absolute grace and without any excuses can get you through a lot of uh, difficult patches. And Marion certainly, in her wisdom, agrees with that. And here she is talking about apologising, but also other life lessons. The most important life skill that any of us will ever learn is the ability to apologise. You know, like people are fecking, you know, climbing mountains and doing duolingo and, you know, making jewellery and... But this learning to apologise, knowing how to apologise properly with sincerity and with no, yeah, but you shouldn't have done that. You know, just to apologise is, well, it's a very, I mean, it's difficult. But apologies are about two things for me. I mean, and I am, I am very prone to like wild irritation when I'm annoyed, which is a lot of the time. Actually, that's another thing about being (laughs) old. You know, I give out. I'm very vocal. And then I feel like shit, you know, because if I've hurt somebody, it's very, very difficult. You know, I feel I don't want another person to be upset because of something I've done. I don't want to make the world slightly worse than it already is. But I also apologise for myself because carrying that shame and regret around with me it never goes away. I, you know, I tried to pretend that the event didn't happen. And I sort of think, I will never go to that place ever again. You know, maybe the entire city of Bologna. You know, I will just never, I'll never go to Italy. And, well, <laughs> Europe, the, the, the main, the continent of Europe. If I just never go there, then I won't be reminded of that terrible way I behaved. But if I pluck up or kind of connect with the mature part of myself and try and mind the mortified child part of myself and go along and do my apologies, it means that I can I can visit Europe again and indeed Italy and maybe even Bologna. You know, like the apologiser gets as much, if not more, out of it than the apologise mm. if that's a word. Yeah, I think we can make it a word. Okay. It's not. Yeah. Now, can we talk about romantic relationships? Oh, yeah. I have such strong feelings on it. Okay. Um, and I suppose I'm saying this for the youngs. The youngs. Um, yeah. We have a lot of the youngs listening to the podcast. Yeah, actually. and like I was a very, oh, complicated young. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought there was the one. The one does not exist. You know, there is no such thing. Don't be wasting your time. You meet somebody and he's really nice or she's really nice or whatever. And then you find out they have awful taste in, in music or socks or whatever. You Don't, don't, don't like burn it all down just because of that. Because we're all just flawed human beings staggering around in the fog, doing our best. And you could be the person with the bad socks or the, or you know, or the dodgy earrings or whatever um, to somebody else. And you wouldn't like to be, 
you know, dismissed entirely because of that. We have to realise that the people we fall in love with are as incomplete as we are. You know, we can't look to other people to make us feel complete. Mm. Like we can't. It's impossible. I can't do it for anyone else and nobody else can do it for me. Um, And you know that whole thing about bad boys, um, which is just so utterly tragic, you know, and I say that as like, you know, I am a card carrying, you know, award winning bad boy follower. Um, (laughs) And we should just call them what they are, which is bad men. And what I used to get from those relationships was nothing to do with what I would get from healthy relationships. And when you think about it, we wouldn't ever be platonic friends with somebody who was cruel to us, who lied to us, who was a, who cheated on us, who was dishonest, who undermined us. Like, you just wouldn't, you know. But throw sex into the mix. And suddenly we're like, oh, you know. <laughs> He's so, I mean, my God, it's like, you know, so passionate and, the you know, it's not passionate, it's unhealthy. And for me, what I was doing was I was so incomplete by myself that I was using kind of the adrenaline mm. of those encounters as a substitute for actual connection. Or I was using, like, when he would finally ring, because this was a long time ago, you know, um, <laughs> The relief that I got was like a rush of like some sort of, what do they call it? Yeah, the endorphins and all No, there's another thing. What's heroin made of? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. One of them. When I got in the in the, after I had my cesarean in the hospital, they give you the bloody morphine. The, yes, yeah, like it, it's, it's good yeah, stuff. Uh, yeah. Still it's like it. you know, it's like a phenomenal pain reliever, and that's what it was like for me. Whereas in relationships, and again, the youngs. I suppose we all have to learn for ourselves. You need to be with somebody who's kind, you know, like there's no other feckin' point. Um, you've got to be some with somebody who's your friend, who likes you, who wants to protect you, who's on your side. Um, and it won't be perfect. You know, they will still do things that like drive you bananas. That was the marvellous Marion Keys there on her life lessons at 60. And continuing on the theme of lessons, we had uh, another great broadcaster and a beauty expert, Sally Hughes, in with us. And she was talking to us about the publication of her book, Everything is Washable and Other Life Lessons, which contains an absolute multitude. But I was particularly interested in Sally's take as a beauty journalist on Botox, because I know many of you will have used Botox. Some of you will have very serious judgments for or against it. And it can be quite controversial, but not according to Sally Hughes. And uh, I think it would be nice to look back on what she said about the use of that cosmetic treatment. Honestly, I just think people need to absolutely get over themselves, over Botox. I have to say, I'm I'm very aware that I'm on the Irish Times podcast, and this is quite relevant, I think. I'm from Wales. I don't think Irish women and Welsh women have got a problem here, I have to say. By and large, when I come to Ireland, women will just talk to each other about whatever's going on, right? But in, and the same as in Wales, my friends in Wales go and get their Botox and they text each other to come around and look at it, right? (laughs) So this is not a problem for some parts of the world. However, I would say there is a very middle-class English problem where women... um, treat Botox, they either look down their nose and sneer at women who get it, 
or they get it themselves and they lie about it. And I think neither things are helpful or friendly or kind to women. So, so, so many people get Botox now. If Botox had existed 100 years ago, men and women would be getting it then as well. Um, if you do it safely and properly with a reputable practitioner and you really do your due diligence, why not? This idea that it's some sort of terrible failing and letting the side down is just absolutely absurd. I don't see people with highlights or teeth whitening. Um, or hair dyeing out their greys getting into trouble. But for some reason, there's this very kind of sneering weirdness about Botox. And so I thought I wanted to write about that. I've never, ever, ever uh, denied or lied about the fact that I get Botox. And I just thought, um, I just want to put it in print and kind of give anybody who's worried about it printed permission to just do what they want with their own face and to tell people to get over themselves. And, you know, as I say, I come to Ireland and there's just this, you know, I come to Ireland fairly often, as you know, very often you and I might have drinks or, or whatever. And there's something about Irish women that is so, so, so similar to Welsh women, where there's there's a joy, there's an, there, there is an open joy in getting ready, in looking nice, in caring about your appearance, in putting on your war paint, glamming up, going out and having a good time. And that's what I'm used to where I come from. But what you see in kind of, you know, in well-heeled parts of London or whatever, is people who somehow think that that gets in the way of them appearing intelligent or or cultured or engaged or they they worry it betrays them as being vain or silly or money to burn and all of that stuff. And I just think it's so, so, so silly. Yeah. And what about the argument where people feel it's not feminist to do that? You know, you should be able to just let your skin become what it's going to be an age in the way that nature intended. What's your response to that? Well, personally, I find that weird. I love defying nature. That's why I don't have babies when I don't want to have babies. That's why I take antibiotics when I've got some kind of bacterial infection. I defy nature all the time. Hooray for defying nature. That is what allows us to live life as we do as feminists. So this idea that you must be natural to be feminist is ridiculous. Otherwise, we'd all have 20 babies, right? So the thing about Botox being unfeminist, to me, the most unfeminist thing is telling women how to look. And if you tell women how to look or how they should live their lives, whether that is that they must be wrinkle free or they must have wrinkles, neither is helpful. I don't think a prescriptive, a prescriptive approach to what women should do with their lives is good. The moment I hear women should, I'm out. I'm just like, oh, go away. Like my interest is lost when I start hearing about what women should do. Do get Botox, don't get Botox. I honestly don't care. I think that people need to stop telling women what they should do or not do with their faces. That was Sally Hughes there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, the next highlight from 2023 on the Women's Podcast I'm going to bring you is our interview with Katrina O'Sullivan. We've had Katrina on recently in reviewing the year, but this was from her interview with me about her book, Poor. She wrote an amazing memoir, which won two awards at the Irish National Book Awards. And the clip we've chosen is her talking about this chance encounter on O'Connell Street with a woman, which ended up inspiring Katrina to go back to Trinity College. And she, in fact, went from that meeting straight over to Trinity College. And that encounter kind of changed her life and set her off on a totally different trajectory than the one she'd been on. I'm a big fan of Katrina O'Sullivan, as you know. Um, I've, I've gushed about her often enough on this, so we had to include her. So here she is talking about that moment that really did change her life. So literally, like every Thursday morning, I'd be in Summerhill, I'd get my lone parents' book, head straight over to Penny's and get myself a few bits. Then I'd probably get myself a fry on Parnell Street. This is what we did. And this particular day, I remember I met Karen outside Penny's on O'Connell Street and how's going? What story? She was like me. She had kitchen on her own. And she was like, <laughs> I'm in Trinity College. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck off. Like literally, like I did not think they let you in. Like I thought that there was a beeper that would like tell if you had like, if you knew what couscous was and if you wore a satchel and a scarf, you know what I mean? And I say that facetiously, but genuinely I thought they wouldn't let us in. Like if so, you were wearing gold hoops. Yeah, I love my in. hoops like yeah. and my tan and my hunbun at that time. So like, I'm like, what? You know, having somebody like me in there was just pivotal. Like, and I know, like, I'm held up as an example for other girls, but, like, it's not just that she was in there. There was all these other system things in place. But, like, one thing you have to remember about girls like me, like, I'm really skilled. Like, I've survived. Like, I'm resilient. I'm mouthy. I'm able to advocate for myself, which is mouthy. You can read a room. I can read a room. I'm sensitive to changes. All these, I can research because I'm like spying on my mom and dad my whole life. So like there's loads of reasons other than trying to rescue people, to empower them, to participate. Like we bring skills to the world if you just give us the opportunity to flourish. And so that skill, when she told me she was in Trinity, it's like, if she's going to her. I'm going there. So you didn't go for a fry, which no. is amazing. You turned around, no. you crossed over the bridge. I went over to Goldsmith Hall. Hilarious. And I, I mean, that to me was just a brilliant, like you actually didn't wait to go home no. and think about it. No, you just, just went over. Yeah. And I knocked on the door. Irina Boydal, another woman who changed my life. Like these stepping stones, and I talk about it in the book. I am very small in my own story, like in my own story of success. I know people like to think that I did it. I didn't. I was helped so much along the way. Karen, Audrey Coakley. was Mr. Pickering Mr. in England. Pickering. We haven't spoken to him. He was her teacher, amazing man. Yeah, so like there were so many people who just saw potential in me and actually gave me an opportunity. Irina Boydow knocked on the door. Um, excuse me, I heard about this thing called the Trinity Access Programme. My friend Karen's doing it. She stood in law now. She was like, breathe, come in. <laughs> Unfortunately now, you can't do that. So, like, you can't knock on the door of the Trinity Access Programme now and get to know the person. It's so much bigger now, so much harder. So that personal element isn't in it, unfortunately. But at that time, Irina, this is the really important piece. 
is that I told her, I don't know why, if it was the day that was in it, but I said everything. I said, I'm so lost. My mom and dad were this. I, I love books. I don't can't tell anyone that. I want a life. And she just looked at me and she was like, aren't you so amazing? And to have one of them middle-class women <laughs> with the flowers. in the modest dress <laughs> at, who's in Trinity College tell you're amazing is, 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 is mind-blowing. Like, I just felt a, a few feet taller in that moment. And she um, said to me, we would love you to apply. And I found myself, like, three weeks later in an interview with these <laughs> lecturers. Like, I, but I did my work. Like, I investigated what it was. I didn't know what I was actually getting into because I think if I'd have known what it was like to study in Trinity, I might not have applied. Mm. And I'm not trying to put other people off, but it's not like this fairy tale where you go in and you feel like you belong. Like, it's tough. Not academically. Academically, I was well able, like, and I thrived. But the other bits were really hard, especially that as I was a mother on my own and I had all this stuff. But actually, I found myself in this interview thinking I was blowing it. And then he asked me about books. And again, Mr. Pickering and all of my people who'd invested in me I was able to like just tell them then I was reading the road less traveled I never Anthony DeMello <laughs> I was like well theoretically you know <laughs> but I was alive then yeah. and they could see it and I knew I'd got it and the wonderful thing about that and it's sad for me now but like my dad framed the letter the offer letter he was so I think for him it was like I didn't ruin everything I didn't ruin everything. Yeah. So I used to go into his house and he'd have this, dear <laughs> Katrina, <laughs> you know, he framed everything actually, but that, that for, for onwards around Trinity, but that was the thing that really he was so proud of. Mm. And I, I love that, that he got, you know, that feeling. That was Katrina O'Sullivan, author of Poor There. And if you haven't read that book, I really do recommend you go and get it because it's uh, it's eye-opening and really important as well. Our next highlight from 2023 is a woman who's been on this podcast several times in the eight years we've been running it, I think it's now, and it's Catelyn Moran. Catelyn came out with a brilliant book last year called What About Men, which sort of tried to tackle all the sort of toxic masculinity and all the issues that young men and older men are facing. So she's kind of trying to apply what she did um, in terms of her feminism to men and trying to help a world where the likes of Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson are taking hold a lot in terms of their thinking in the lives of young men and to try and challenge that a bit. So I wanted to ask her about her research into Andrew Tate and how he's affecting kind of the minds and the thoughts and the hearts of young men and what she thinks we can do about it. So these were her thoughts on Andrew Tate. Every single person I have spoken to in the educational system has gone, yeah, we've had to have staff meetings at school to deal with this. So female teachers are getting homework handed back by boys with make me a sandwich written on the bottom. Like, you should not be teaching me. Male teachers are having boys going, um, do you let your wife go on her own, sir? So the amount of resources that are being put into this one man. And when he, he was first on the rise, I had a lot of conversations with good liberal progressive feminist friends whose sons were being sort of sucked into his ideology. And they were like, we don't understand. We're good liberal progressive feminists. What was the appeal? And I was like, I think it might be because you were good liberal progressive feminists. Because has your son grown up in a house where you would be saying, ah, oh, typical men, typical straight white men, toxic patriarchy, the you know, sort of like, you know, masculinity. Uh, and they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, yeah. I, that's why like we the men of my the progressive men of my generation when this wave of feminism came along 
brilliantly and, and politely just went, fair enough. This is a very recent and relatively mild corrective to 10,000 Years of Patriarchy and Benny Hill chasing sexy schoolgirls around a tree. Well, let the ladies have a go. We'll just pipe down. But suddenly, a generation's gone past and we these teenage boys don't have that perspective. They don't see how recent it is. All they know is that they live in an era where we're constantly saying the future is female. In every magazine and newspaper, we would have a list of 50 women who were going to change the world. You know and I know... No one would commission a list of 50 men who were going to change the world. Like, not now. That would be seen as problematic because we're of a generation where we're like, no, we're still rebalancing the sexism and inequality. Yeah, yeah. but the boys don't have that perspective. So all they know is that there are feminist clubs at school. Like, kind of, we're just, you know, we're writing books like 100 kick-ass female heroes from history. But suddenly a generation's gone by where we just haven't had any kind of positive, progressive, uplifting conversation about boys and men. And so that's why when Andrew Tate pipes up... He's the first person in their lifetime who's gone, no, boys are great. In fact, boys should rule the world. Masculinity is great and you can't have enough of it. So, of course, coupled with a sense of teenage rebellion and wanting to, like, fuck your parents off, like, he, he seems like a massively appealing figure. It's really interesting to say that because I would probably be one of those people as well, you know, talking about women. But I, I found, I have teenage daughters who thankfully don't yet listen to this podcast, so I think I can speak freely <laughs> until, I don't know. Anyway, they, they um, are quite down on boys at the moment, right? They find, you know, they're in a mixed school and they find, like, the, the boys in their class or in their year, they're, they're, they're scared of them a bit they yeah. feel like they're they're not people that they can relate to and, and they're being very down on boys and I find myself lately trying to go no they're just lovely people and I'm sure they're just going through stuff that you're going through and you know when they get a bit older you know girls are probably a bit more, more mature a bit earlier and it's really interesting how I'm finding I want them to go to a mixed school I don't know if it's different, Catelyn, to to England. Here, you know, mixed schools are kind of the outliers. Oh, which really? Most of them are single sex, oh. which I, it's a whole other podcast, but I really think it's terrible. Yes. Um, but I, they happen to go to a mixed gender school. And it makes me so sad that their impression of boys at the moment, and I don't know if it's Andrew Tate stuff or whatever it is, or is it just like they're just a bit loud um, and, and they're a bit sensitive, I'm not sure. But it's just, uh, I find myself having to defend these young guys who I imagine are going through all the things that you're sort of talking about. Well, it's, the problem is, and like kind of one of the things that I'm trying to make clear in the book is that like kind of like when you've got like, you know, let's just be very basic and generalised, that's my thing, good men and bad men. <laughs> I think the majority of men are good. But, like, the small cohort of bad men are ruining it for not only the girls, but for the boys as well. So, for instance, my daughter was, um, she was in charge of the school yearbook. She was, like, in charge of, like, and she was, like, sent out a WhatsApp message to the whole year going, has anyone got any pictures of, like, trips we've been on and school plays and stuff? And I put them in the yearbook. All the girls sent back pictures of trips and plays. The boys started spamming it with, like, really extreme porn. And, like, kind of, like, you know, bukkake shots and kind of pictures of kids with learning disabilities, kind of, like, you know, and, and all this stuff. And, like, it was only four or five boys, but because there isn't anything like feminism for men, the good boys didn't know what to do. They didn't want to be seen to, like, kind of, like, you know, the party poopers or, like, to tell off other boys in the way that I think women are much better at policing each other. Like, kind of, like, had a girl been problematic on there? Feminism has become good, sometimes too good, at women scolding other women. But at least there is a self-regulation there. Mm. So we said so the boys, the good boys don't know how to counteract the bad boys. So then the girls are like, oh, well, they're, they're making all their judgments about boys just on the bad boys and the fact that the good boys are silent and so like my daughters went through a massive man-hating phase like you know it's kind of like partly in that way you do when you discover your feminism and you always go a bit too far at the beginning like I don't know if you've seen the film Moxie but it's about a group of, oh it's amazing oh, you'd love it, it. Okay. it's about a group of teenage girls in a, in a school with some bad boys and they discover feminism but they take it too far okay. and they just become absolute <laughs> misandrists and boy-hating and then yeah. they have to learn to turn it down they get a bit drunk on the feminism yeah. so my girls were very much man-hating and then they read the, the my book and they were like and they came in and they looked quite abashed and they were like 
yeah, I just realised that when I go around saying I hate all men, that's actually the good boys are being sad about that, but they don't even know how to say, like, kind of that makes me sad because they've yeah. been brought up to go, don't mansplain over a woman who says that she hates men. Mm. And my ultimate thing, like, kind of, there were quite a few feminists who were like, when I announced that I was doing this book, who were like, oh, you've abandoned the women then. Like, kind of, you're saying that men, like, you know, you're, you're team men now. I was like, no, this is absolutely an extension of my feminism because as any woman will tell you, 50% of our problems are men. Bad men, scared men, mm. angry men, misogynist men. So you can't fix the girls until you fix the boys. Yeah. And you can't fix the good boys until you fix the bad boys. Because ultimately, we're all just brothers and sisters, you know, in the back seat of a car, being driven by our Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> to the ultimate destination of the grave. And we can't be fighting on the back seat. It's a very short journey, really. We die quite quickly. So my whole thing is about we've just got our luck. The brothers and sisters need to get on with each other. And so if you look at what's making boys angry and scared and sad, it helps both the women and the the good boys who just are sitting there without any kind of vocabulary to discuss how they feel about their lives mm. in the way that we've given girls mm. a vocabulary to do that, which is feminism. And that was our final highlight uh, in your favourite episodes of 2023 with Catelyn Moran. So I hope you enjoyed that little look back. From next week, we'll be looking forward again and going back to uh, our regular run of shows. But if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy the podcast generally, please do leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really makes a difference to us. It's produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Happy New Year. I hope you have a brilliant 2024 and I hope you stay listening to us right throughout it. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.